Hey guys, just a quick note before we roll. The George Hahn Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. No advertisers, no paywall. All my online efforts are made possible by the support of readers, followers, fans, and listeners like your fine selves. To keep it all commercial free, visit georgehahn.com slash support where you can make a one-time contribution or start a monthly subscription. And thank you. Wait, you said, you said, George, you're, George, Paul texted me and said, um, you're, you're the veritable Emily Dickinson of Midtown. And I think, oh, that's aiming a little high. I just want to be the Angie Dickinson of Midtown. And, <laughs> and so you are. No. You're <laughs> thank you. Proudly. Thank you. Welcome to the George Hahn Podcast. My guest on this episode is celebrated playwright, screenwriter, and novelist Paul Rudnick. Paul's plays have been produced both on and off-Broadway and around the world and include I Hate Hamlet, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, Valhalla, Regrets Only, and The New Century. He has won the Obie Award, two Outer Critics Circle Awards, and the John Gassner Playwriting Award. In addition to the screenplay adaptation of his hit play, Jeffrey, Paul also wrote the scripts for Adam's Family Values, In and Out, Sister Act, and most recently, Coastal Elites for HBO. Paul's novels include Social Disease, I'll Take It, and the forthcoming Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style, out in June from Simon & Schuster. Paul is also the creator of the legendary Libby Gelman Waxner, an assistant buyer in Junior's Activewear who wanted more and decided to become a film critic. Her reviews were featured for years in Premier Magazine and Entertainment Weekly. And for me, Paul also happens to be one of the smartest, funniest, and most clever and worthwhile voices on Twitter. Thank you. That was delightful. True story. Say that many, many times. Oh, I shall. <laughs> I'll give it a glossy broadcast read. Yeah. About Twitter. So we were talking about Twitter. You joined in 2015. That sounds right. Do you remember? Did you was? Do you remember why you joined? I think I was promoting something. I think I had a book out, and it, and you know, all the 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 young folk on the staff said you should be doing this, and I was of course terrified because I am not just a late adapter. I'm the last adapter. <laughs> you know, I'm still like, what are these pencils you're talking about? So I <laughs> signed up because I thought I can't master this. I have no tech skills whatsoever. So, and then I fell hopelessly in love with it because yeah. there are so many fun and fascinating people, much like yourself on Twitter. And also it's in real time. Yeah. And I find whatever you actually want to know what is happening right this second, whether it's an election or a catastrophe or a tsunami, you go on Twitter. Yeah. And I love that. And so it's, um, it just became a very a delightful home. Agreed. I saw, I w- listened to a podcast. I'm an NPR nerd and I was listening to NPR and uh, Fresh Air and Terry Gross had on this tech reporter, a guy named Casey Newton, who's very smart and funny and described she was, they were talking about Elon and the whole uh, Twitter thing, and uh, she asked him why he liked Twitter. And uh, his an- in his answer, he said, you know, I'm not pretty enough for Instagram. I can't dance for TikTok, but I like people who are clever in sentences, and t- I, I'm really good at Twitter. And I thought that, I love that answer. 
Oh, it's true. It's very verbal. You right. Know it. It's a words. I mean, yes, I'm known, I guess, for videos and stuff, but I also love following. Like, yeah, my thing is performative, but you are clever with words. Well, and so, and so many people there yes. are, and even the ones who aren't, because sometimes you sort of wait and hope for the people who just blurt things out yeah. and will regret them instantly, and you think, <laughs> God bless you, you know, that you don't have a filter. <laughs> um, and when you, although the most terrifying thing on Twitter or anywhere is the people who don't have literal, and it's it's just a condition, it's not really their fault, they have no sense of humor, so they don't know when something is a joke, and you think, if you took that seriously or literally, mm-hmm. you'd be in big trouble. Yeah. And they are. And you can't figure out how to – you want some sort of alert to go off and say, no, 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 punchline. Yeah. You know, and yeah. they – it's sort of kind of like ignorant bliss there that they go, how do you get through the world? How do you cross the street? It is amazing to me the rope with which people dole out to hang themselves. Oh, my God, yes. You know, and I just – Elon's doing it a little bit. I, I don't – I never followed Trump when he was on Twitter because mm-hmm. enough other people did and reposted his, so I'd never had to add to that number of followers. I'm the same with Elon. I've never followed him. So many people, like, screenshot or whatever that content, so why should I be, I guess, be added to that number of people following these beasts? And Trump did – Trump's doing it a lot on Truth Social, like incriminating himself when it comes to – things he's saying recently about the classified documents or whatever. And I'm just thinking like, you know, people are reading this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, but that you see your big mistake of that sentence was other people, other you know, <laughs> do not exist for him. This is true. You this know, true. it was just, right. there's a big in, undifferentiated mass of fans uh, is sort of at well, Cause Trump is also dull, which is sad. You know, he always goes on way too long mm-hmm. and he has no sense of humor. So None. it's, it's just droning. Mm-hmm. Elon is stupid in a very bold, self-confident way that he'll say things that are, you think, again, what you just said, you know you have children. Yeah. <laughs> he just, and you could tell that he's he's got that sort of slightly on the spectrum feeling oh, where yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. okay, you don't understand the public, you know, sphere and you don't seem to know that your words have a certain weight and you just blurt and that's in its own sort of frightening way entertaining but not a, but yeah it makes you worry he, f- he seems like he really does believe that he alone can fix it and really does have this sort of odd messiah complex and uh, to quote uh that tech reporter casey newton again he said something like elon musk has no imposter syndrome no he does not none. suffer from that at all like he walks into a room confident with that Barrel chest out, going. I got. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm here now. Everyone's yes, you're welcome. Yes, <laughs> and exactly. Then, and he seems to. I'm sure he had that since birth. And because I don't doubt it. The yeah. only time he gets genuinely scary is whenever you could see something penetrates the thick layer of confidence, and he feels attacked, and then he just lashes out. Yeah. You know, usually calling someone a pedophile who is not. What's the obsession with that moniker? Oh my lord! Well, because I think it's the one thing that they feel will stick. That it's they think it okay yeah. that's surefire that will shut someone down, right. and I think with that guy who was actually helping rescue the trapped kids in mm-hmm. Thailand, mm-hmm. That, that was genuinely evil when it he was. pursued him that way, mm-hmm. and so I think that's when Elon becomes dangerous. That mm-hmm. it's you know when he feels like a trapped animal. Well, he's most recently uh, there was this this um, I've, I'm going to mess up his last name, but Yol is his name, who was the sort of security. 
a security person at Twitter and hung around for as long as he yes. could. Yes, yes. And Elon has launched this this critical campaign of him that has caused you all to have to move because he's getting so many threats because of what Elon's been saying about him. Right. And Elon will not apologize. He'll sometimes no. delete things, but he will never admit ever, you know, fault. And you think, okay, that's the mark of a very tiny human being, you know, because yeah. you th- also Elon's imagines he's a fun guy. Oh, he thinks he's a riot. You know, when you see him dance out on stage like thinks the drunken uncle riot. at a wedding and you think, no, 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 you've got this you know, 100% oh, wrong. God. We are not cheering. We are booing. Right. And it's, which is the spectacle of it is it's it's very sort of Nero or something. It's, but he really, he, he always hears an imagined cheering throng. I'm sure when he wakes up in the morning, but, um, and I, you wonder, and he seems to have like 8,000 children. It's eight or 9,000. Yeah. He's competing with Alec Baldwin. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, Alex are made in love. <laughs> Yes. Alex are. are made with love. <laughs> and Alec is a very present father. So let's just be clear. Yes. And I would much rather be Alec Baldwin's child than oh, Elon Musk's thousand child. thousand percent. Please. Um, yes. And also, well, it's like, you know, the Trumpville, that where you think, okay, all these kids are hanging in for the money. Mm-hmm. But that's, I, oh, I once had a friend who had an aunt who was just a hideous human being, just the worst. No one would have anything to do with her. He was the only person in the family who was nice to her because she was so wealthy. And she had an emerald ring that he particularly coveted. So he thought, I will become the favorite and I will inherit everything. And then, of course, she got Alzheimer's and didn't remember anyone. So he got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, well, there's a lesson for you. Really? I mean, what a way to just say, you know, tell me you have no skills without telling me you have no skills. Yes. Yes. But you always think, and the, the power of those billionaires and oligarchs to sort of, you know, wave the will around. Right. And say, hmm, well, well, let me, you know, I'm going to add a codicil today. Ivanka. You, all right, I need to talk, all right, I, you're twittery at the Trump children <gasps> and the trolling of Dame Lindsey Graham, and we're going to get to that, is so exquisite <laughs> and so delicious and refined. And I don't, like, you know of this thing, like, there is this, there is black Twitter. Like, it's a community of black yes. people. Like, yes, Um Obviously, I'm not a member of it. But to my knowledge... And, you know, you say you're the last adapter. I'm the latest to find shit out. Like, I think mm-hmm. I might be the only one who was not invited to the Respect for Marriage Act party yesterday. Like, I did not get an invite. I think I'm the I only one. You didn't even know about it. Yeah, right? So, so, so it's not just way me. more popular. Good. Okay, thank you. So it's us. Yes. Because we have no respect for marriage. <laughs> um, they knew that. They could smell it. <laughs> Zero. We are good. I'm signing the disdain for marriage Exactly. Act. Thank you. Um, but... Your trolling of Dame Lindsey Graham is exquisite. Oh, well, he's a gift. Oh, it's just, and how yeah. did you, you did, for, for people who are listening, um, and again, I hope all of you by now have gone to Twitter as you're listening and started following Paul Rudnick, but how you connect the connective tissue between Lindsey Graham and Joan Crawford <laughs> is just so perfect. <laughs> is it the desperation of the two of them? It's a desperate. Well, also, I think it's actually a compliment to Lindsay, which I hate because Lindsay is actually a horrible human being. That's yeah. why I feel it's all right to go after him because he's rejected every form of gay civil rights, voted he, he against. He does it all from a place it. of power. Oh but yeah. What, what I was going to say is that there is no gay Twitter. 
No. But, but I think you and I should start that. Although that just might be redundant on a certain <laughs> level. You know? <laughs> Especially in this room. This, yes. 100%. Know? That is redundant. Yes, yeah. because if you think in a weird way, Twitter's like, what was, remember Mystery Science Theater, which was about people just commenting on an ongoing terrible horror movie? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what Twitter is. <laughs> it's the peanut gallery. You know, it's everyone mocking whatever is of the moment. And... That's that's something that gay people have often, you know, yeah. honed themselves. Oh at. yeah, it was our survival. Yeah, yeah. So Dame Lindsay and the connective tissue with Joan. Well, I just el- elaborate because it's so so beautiful. I just always thought, okay, what if Lindsay, instead of being a sad, desperate racist, was a grand dame, was a matron, you know, was someone who really had a little bit of a take on life, so that I thought it was a way of just channeling his graciousness uh-huh. um, and his and his toughness and the fact that Lindsay has hung in there. Because mm-hmm. the thing about Lindsay that would almost make him tragic, except he's too hateful, is that he clearly has no friends, and I don't even think he has a sex life. His only focus has been on staying a senator. And he's done that for his whole life. And anything that interferes with that, he I mean, he will say anything if it's what he feels his hideous MAGA base wants to. Right. Although, you know, my favorite thing about Lizzie ever is in his memoir. Do tell. Where he says the love of his life was a flight attendant on Lufthansa. Is <laughs> <laughs> that real? <laughs> that is real. That's in the book. And I think her name was Stella. And he says, and this is a direct quote, sadly, she returned to Vienna. <laughs> and oh I thought, God. Lindsay, you realize there are telephones. You could go to Vienna and visit with Sal. But just, the, and as everyone points out, it's just like, remember in, um, uh, with Corky St. Clair in Waiting for Guffman, oh, his wife, wife Bonnie. Bonnie. Who I lived buy in most Can- of her clothes. Exactly. And anyone who has a girlfriend in Canada. Yeah. You know, and you think, Lindsay, did you really feel it was necessary? Um, <laughs> and someday you just want, because I, re- I did once post a photo of, of remember when Ted Cruz appeared in. Is oh, no, he, not is he the Corky St. Clair of the Senate? He just Oh, completely. Yeah. Except Corky St. Clair is endearing. Yes. And Lindsay Almost, he tiptoes up to the line to be so hapless and so desperate and so naked that he's appealing, but he's not quite. The weird thing, he gets those man crushes too. The way he draped himself over John McCain like, you know, a cheap mink. It was just. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Brett Kavanaugh lust. Oh, wow. Oh, my Lord. I've never. The way you illustrate that on Twitter is so beautiful. Well, there's that photo of the two of them in Lindsay's office where you have never seen a man as happy as Lindsey Graham no, standing next to no. Brett Kavanaugh. It's like a boy with a new puppy. Oh, I mean. it's like a boy with someone else's jockstrap in his hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just... Um, Even better. He's just beaming. And yeah. and you it almost makes you fear for Brett Kavanaugh. A little bit. You know, because yeah. you think... You're not safe. No, not you not can't in, step outside your house. No. Because he's there. Yeah. He's in the bushes. <sighs> and, and it's a, a certain type of, of man, of mm-hmm. sort of jockish... Right. Very straight guy, and Lindsay just melts. Well, there's also a photo that I think I did once post of Lindsay surrounded by Marines. And you could tell this was his Tom of Finland moment. Yeah. <laughs> he was so happy. And a little bit like his solid gold dancers or something. But you just think, Lindsay, you're such an open wound. Um, and then he, but he will do, and the way he flip flops on Trump and on everyone, oh. you know, although there is, there's a wonderful picture of him. And Ted Cruz sort of gossiping, where yeah. it's just like, you know, Lucille, Lucy and Ethel or something. But Delicious. Um, yeah, no, he's just ripe. And he keeps, you know, 
He doesn't give up, and neither will I. You tweet, I notice, on, um, uh, it says, you know, because on Twitter it tells us where someone is tweeting from, whether it's Twitter for iPhone, Twitter for Android, and yours is Twitter for web, which tells me you're sitting at a computer. Is that true? Yeah, I usually do it from, like, my MacBook or my desktop or something. And while you're working? Often. Yeah. It's, well, it's a wonderful... Well, that's Because you're a thing. prolific tweeter. Well, if you're a writer, the thing is you're used to these endless deadlines where yeah. if you write a play, if you write a book, it's going to be months, if not years, before it's ever out there in the world. And Twitter is so tempting because it's instant. Yes. And um, so, yeah, it's a great... You know, it's also what I, th- I think, like Tom Stoppard once called a gag reflex, that you just, if you've got a joke and you think it's not good enough for anything else, let's put it on Twitter. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know? It's like an out-of-town tryout. Absolutely. On your phone. You could see people, especially writers, rehearsing their material. Comics all the time. Yeah. Yes, they are. They um, really which is, is useful, because you also, you could see what works. You could delete, which is, uh, is yeah. you know, bliss. But it's... Um, the feedback is pretty immediate. Yeah. You know right away if something lands. And it, well, it shocked me from the beginning, and, I, and it was sort of wonderful at the same time that people from literally all over the world, and you think, ah, so uh, a teacher or a librarian in Omaha who probably feels quite isolated can relate to a gay guy from New York, you know, and you think that's kind of great, and that's something very much to Twitter's credit. Of course, you could also attract the MAGA folk who will immediately, you know, post a Bible verse have you gotten in the in, in the Elon Times? Have you have you gotten a little spike in nasty feedback? I have. Yes, absolutely. There's certainly a lot more of that. Yeah. Well, and their idea of you know high wit is always you're an asshole. Ooh, um, you know when you go good burn, <gasps> exactly. Good burn. Well, in Ow. that case, I'm off Twitter. But it's so easy to delete them to yeah. block them. Um, I don't. Uh, I have a lot of friends who will often, you know, I guess do what one might call a punch down. But I, yeah, as you said, I will block, you know, ignore. Yeah, don't whatever. feed the trolls. No. You know? I think because. I can't be bothered. Yeah. And if you engage, suddenly there's an endless, you know, of your stupid. Right. You're stupider. Uh, you know, so that it's it's very. I got sweetheart. real problems. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, work harder. You know, if you're going to insult me, mm-hmm. be better at it. Thank you. Um, There's a lack of cleverness that you don't s- – <laughs> I've often joked – I'd be interested in your take on this. I've often joked that um, the reflex from the right is sort of an I'll get you from people in high school who just were not that smart. They weren't very good dancers. They weren't clever. They weren't funny. So this is their I'll show you time. Oh, absolutely. It's so protected. It's anonymous. Yes. And that – and they could do it from their basement and their recliner. Right. But it's, uh, oh, yeah, that there's an element of sort of infantile vengeance, mm-hmm. which I practice as well. But it's, yeah, but you're, it's so delicious because you're clever. Well, yeah, you also, do a lot I think of stuff I think to, that goes over people's heads, too. Years ago, I realized there was a whole category of things that I had written, which were I, I filed as jokes only gay dogs can hear. <laughs> um, That's perfect. Well, I love those jokes more than anything, but really, that yeah. was it. They were not useful in a way. So, but Twitter sometimes you can find your tribe of yes. one and a half people who also, you know, know who that particular. That, who know what that failed musical Jokes was. that only gay dogs can hear. Paul, that's, that's beautiful. That's on my tombstone. Um, <laughs> now, occasionally on Twitter, um, depending on the situation, I notice also that you will pull the jokes aside and you will launch a tweet that is dead serious. And occasionally something that will, you know, like you are, you're, you're, you'll get fired up about something. 
Yeah, because yeah. well, recently it's been with the Respect for, for Marriage Act, right. which I think is uh, yes, it's ultimately a good thing. But I thought the it's also so offensive. It's such a, a table scrap that it's necessary. Yeah, that it's scrap, necessary, and right. that it's saying okay, if they overturn uh, marriage equality, which they will, mm-hmm. that means half the states have an instant law that will kick in banning gay marriage. So you will, no one in those states will be able to get married. And yes, we'll have this law which will protect marriages from New York in Missouri. But that's the insult of that. Yeah. You know, and when compared to, to straight marriage, you think, no, though, don't stop celebrating that to such an extreme degree because it's really just uh, a, a stopgap. It's, it's what you're settling for. Right. And so, yeah, that kind of thing, I thought, yeah, that's not so funny. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, and also if they overturn Loving versus Texas, which Clarence Thomas is desperate to do, that means gay sex becomes a crime. And that means gay marriage will be have no meaning whatsoever, and they really will be able to jail gay people again. And Amy Coney Barrett, God love her, is um, also very gung ho about that. So I think they, they also I get the feeling you could tell they've all gotten very sensitive, as if you know because there were pickets outside the their houses of the SCOTUS, Republican SCOTUS justices, as if like, wait, you are questioning mm-hmm. our godlike wisdom, mm-hmm. and it's going to make them meaner and spiteful and vengeful, and they have a lot of power to use. So it really could get very, very ugly. Why do people hate the gays so much? I, I always what think is the big deal? Well, it always it's cyclical with the Jews as well, and I think yeah. they hate black people and people of color endlessly, so that they, they don't even need a cycle. But it's, um, yeah, I think it's because since the Republicans rarely have any real platform, mm-hmm. all they can do is lash out. Mm-hmm. And they need a target that they feel doesn't have their resources. And to a certain extent, I think that they always see gay people as weak. They see gay people as minor. Mm-hmm. They can always use the groomer accusation. What the fuck is that? Yeah, exactly. And I thought, yeah. you, honey, you people shouldn't be talking about grooming. But <laughs> You know? But it's, um, yeah, it's just an easy scapegoat mm-hmm. because for so many centuries, gay people had no recourse. Mm-hmm. And now we do, which I think probably scares them even more. Right. But it's, but, you know, we are so far from alone in that. But it's like with the, the big spike in anti-Semitism. You think, where did that come from? Why did suddenly Out of the blue Hitler popular like, again? Oh, hi, Kanye. What the yeah, hell exactly. is this? Were you bored? It was just, you think, at least find a new victim group. You know, it just right. seems very odd. And it makes you, it's exhausting because you think, didn't we have those battles? Political activists who I've known, they always refused to go on any TV or radio program where they had to defend who they were. They wouldn't debate, you know, some horrible evangelist who said you're all going to hell because the idea of even appearing opposite that person was so offensive. Mm-hmm. And I always admired that. I thought, so you don't have to take a deep breath. There's nothing and, to defend. Right, exactly. And you should not be required to be reasonable and right. even-handed. This is not— It's not a court. Yeah. There's no crime here. And there's no equality of opinion here, mm-hmm. you know? And that's exactly. the other thing that I find genuinely maddening is when people say, oh, it's just a difference of opinion. And you think, Mm-mm. not when your marriage is invalidated. It's not not when you're not allowed to get an abortion or any birth control. That's not a difference of opinion. That's something that's being legally enforced. I'm not apologizing for being fun. You should, goddamn you. That's the <laughs> trouble with you gay people. You're all fun. Oh, <laughs> God. And you make children be fun. Yeah. That's, I love the drag queen story era. It's like, oh, yeah, that's really an elite ground force. Right. You know, that's really going to destroy villages. Kids are in more danger in churches. 
oh, my God, well, that's the thing that Dan Savage, who's so great, yes. always says. I love Dan. Um, you know, that if, if what well, was just comparing the church with, with clowns. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, no, it is, but it's so, you know, enraging that sometimes you actually also have to just ignore it and say, yeah. you know, let them be them. There is this uh, this role of humor in politics. There is the immediate laugh that we get, you know, when the joke hopefully lands. But do you, do you think it's deeper than that? I found that when I was finding my voice on social media, it was very political. It was a little therapeutic for me. I called it performative therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, still do. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I think it really is a weapon. And I think especially when it becomes kind of a mass phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think it's like when Elon was booed and he suddenly realized everyone doesn't love me. Right. You know that it there is a certain power in group, even if it's comic protest, even better if it's comic protest, because that somehow becomes a little more inescapable. And the Republicans having no sense of humor really can't fight back on that level. And I think it may have even involves the way in which the Trump support seems to be softening a bit because I always think if the Trump family had a sense of humor, they'd be unstoppable even more than they are. They'd be fun. I would enjoy them. You'd think if they said, yes, we're all hucksters and con artists and we're sleazy and, you know, gosh darn it. And then you'd think, okay, then you're entertaining because you've got some self-awareness and they have none. None. And the only ones who have some glimmer of that, but mostly it's about status as you know with like jared and ivanka who realized oh my god we thought we were going to be the king and queen of the universe and everyone hates us and we can't go back to new york because people will spit on us they live in snow globes oh yeah and now they live in you know a tropical snow globe right i did once meet well i can't say i met ivanka but i had that experience i was for no good reason someone's guess it's the tony awards at radio city and I stepped on Ivanka's train. She's, you know, she's very tall, and she was wearing a chiffon gown, and it had a train. And I didn't say, why are you wearing a train at a crowded event? I'm not. And I stepped on it, and I apologized. And she was very sweet. But then the only thing I learned was she does have that instant, constant desire to please, that daddy's girl thing of wanting to assure everyone that she's beloved and gracious, Mm -hmm. which sounds fine until you sort of weaponize it and take it into the White House. But she wants people to genuinely like her. She wants to at least be allowed back across the border. And that's not going to happen. I'm going to ask you about that when we get to Coastal Elites because I loved it. Oh, thank (laughs) you. Thank you. Um, Particularly that monologue. Maya Rudolph does a funny send up of Ivanka Trump when she imitates the way Ivanka talks. Like she's got a sexy secret. Yes, completely. <laughs> that's the well, way that's she part is because she wants to ingratiate. I have a sexy secret. Mm-hmm. I always love what she does her sort of drive by five minute photo ops at food banks. She did one last week where she's, you know, in her tight jeans and her white silk blouse, creaseless, and with her fresh blowout, and she's holding a gourd. And I thought, Ivanka, I don't think that people, you know, with food issues need gourds. But <laughs> it's like they're not creating tablescapes for the holidays. And so she's completely tone deaf. And you could tell it always is a shock to her when her gracious lady, you know, grand white woman things don't go over so well. Mm-hmm. And she'll try again after a while. But um, she also is the mistress of the fake spontaneous here I am in a white crop top, and suddenly there are photographers surrounding me. Yep. How did they know? What? <laughs> um, but, Who, me? Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and Jared just, well. Uh, Is she the top? 
Uh, yes. Yes, because he's so utterly clueless and skeevy uh-huh. that I think she's probably the only one he listens to. And I think it's like commands with a dog at obedience school. Yeah, like, that's what no, it feels like. down. Yeah. They do have that slight awareness of what New York acceptance mm-hmm. is and almost was for them. Right. They know that they are in a penal colony now. You know, this is their life. Yeah, this they is didn't want to be there. Is is Don or Don Jr. and the one who got cropped out of the photo? Are they Kimberly. in the city anymore? No, none of them could be in the city. No, because they were on the Upper West Side. Oh yeah, until not long ago. And they all had apartments in Trump buildings, right? Which is part of the tax fraud. But they all bought homes down there. Yeah, because that's well, Don Jr. and Kimberly are just. She looks like an overinflated fuck doll. Oh, she looks like three overinflated fuck dolls. <laughs> She's, well, she, <laughs> we just we're gonna pause and get a couple saucers of milk. Like. I was gonna say, <laughs> this is how people think gay men talk, and welcome, they're right. <laughs> welcome to gay Twitter, right here. <laughs> I'm here with Eartha Kitt. <laughs> I, I have the feeling, though, Kimberly. And I'm Lee Merriweather. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> and this is Match Game. So I want to ask you about, so speaking of the Trumps, Coastal Elites is a feature-length film, uh, like around 90 minutes, five monologues, released in COVID times, released in lockdown times, and definitely shot with a very lockdown sensibility. But had you, and also just for the listener, in case you haven't, it's five different monologues, five different stories, although two overlap. Yeah, they're, they're, with no you could follow things. Right. And each and different, one is, you know, there's a, there's a FaceTime chat with a friend, there is a Zoom call, there's a live uh, um, web stream, there is, Bette Midler's in front of a cop. Yeah, Bette Midler is in a police station. In a police station in front of a cop. And so... Had you conceived of all of these characters for the, was it written and conceived of expressly for lockdown? No, it was so interesting. Because it's it's all, they're all Trumpy. Oh, yeah. It it was out of pure, helpless, shrieking rage that I was so shared by everyone I knew and many people in the country. Right. That sense of, if people can remember the sort of choking panic before the last election. Yeah. That sense of, we cannot allow this to happen again. Mm -hmm. And this just stuff just... So it poured out, and it was originally going to be done on stage at the public theater. I saw this as I was watching it. I'm thinking this would be a marvelous stage play. That's what it was going to be. And Jay Roach, the wonderful director, was going to direct it and then film it for HBO live on stage. And that was going to be – I was thrilled. And then there was that day when everything shut down, and I thought, okay, this is over, and this will never happen. And then – HBO said, what if there was a way? And this was really early in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So the we got these wonderful, extraordinary actors, you know, Ben and um, Caitlin Devers and Dan Levy and Issa Rae and just the, the best people. A really wonderful, and, great oh, cast. Yeah, and um, they were all in their homes. Mm-hmm. This was all done under the most extreme lockdowns with minimal, if any, crew. They were all, we built a tiny set in a building outside of, in Bet's backyard. I remember on the day, Usually when someone raps on a movie shoot, mm-hmm. someone in the production will say, and that's a rap for, you know, George Hahn. And everybody will clap and you'll get in your limo and go away. Mm-hmm. So when we did that for Sarah Paulson, everyone said, that's a rap for Sarah Paulson. And she walked five feet into her house <laughs> <laughs> because we were shooting in her back in her little casita. Uh, and we thought, well, let's just see if, if this can work. And I think some people responded to it well and loved it. Some people didn't. But it was... Um, 
so much of exactly that moment. And it was very specific of yeah. the moment since 2016 or since, you know, the dawn of Trump's political, legitimate political career in quotes. I've only seen one MAGA hat in Manhattan. Yeah. Only one. It was in uh, Murray Hill. Oh, and it was, God. I mean, it, it's in a, as you, you know, articulate with Beth's character in that monologue, it's like in New York. Really? It's such a. It really stands out. Oh yeah, no, it's it's the most basic sort of sig. I was really taken insult. very oh, yeah. much so. I was really taken back. Which is why I thought anyone who wears that no is looking for a response. Mm-hmm. That's a go. They're yeah. really saying, "Come at me." Um, Issa Rae's character. Oh, okay. Issa was just senseless. She, I could watch Issa all day. I oh, loved yeah. Insecure. Oh my God! Yes, and she's Ugh. oh, she's because she's an amazing writer. She's all of it. A great actress. She's gorgeous. Lord knows, and she um, no, she was a joy to work with too. Because that speech was so complex and had and she didn't want any of it pulled back or simplified or toned down. She just went for it. Nailed it. She really nailed it. Did you have these actors in mind when you wrote it or no? Oh, no, because I would never dream of it. You would never be able to assemble that cast on stage. <laughs> you know, no one's, Elon's got that kind of money. Everybody's kind of just, everybody's was so custom tailored to them. Oh, and yeah. it was so beautiful. My question about the Issa monologue is that you, you describe so vividly, and I don't want to spoil anything because y'all should see it, but, and it's streaming on HBO Max. Um, you describe in such detail this young woman's relationship with her school friend, Ivanka Trump, and go into these details about what she's like, her character and the kind of things that she would say. And you'd think like, so I had, I'm like thinking, did Paul actually meet Ivanka? Does he know (laughs) someone who had a conversation like this with her? Was that split second? No, because when you see, she was very savvy about not being interviewed that often because usually she'd say something so vile and she'd get called on it and you could tell she'd retreat, you know, into her burrow. Yeah. But uh, but also anyone who's met people who've been to those particular private schools and has that little princessy tone and has no self awareness that it makes it a very juicy target among other things. But with Ivanka, there we it's funny. I I think a lot of people in New York felt so particularly betrayed by her because she seemed to have some mild sense of well she'd been a liberal Democrat for many years and I think Ivanka made a decision based almost entirely on pure greed. And on, you know, pure sort of hubris where she just said, oh, wait, this is all I've been waiting for. Here is my throne. Here is my scepter. And it blew up in her face, which has been interesting to watch because you could tell she's been burned. Yeah. And she's just bright enough to realize that. And I think she and Jared also have decided, okay, we can't be loved, but we can be really obscenely rich. It's as if they think or thought, here it comes. They're going to come for us, and it's all the the world is going to be our oyster. The world is Completely. ours. They really thought that. Oh, and Ivanka really thought she was going to be president. And like Elon's discovering, oh yeah, not everybody likes you, right? And they're when you penetrate this snow globe, and they really do get a glimpse of the kind of air that the rest of us are breathing. Oh wait a minute, not everybody does love me. And the shock. I think Donald went through that. When he ran. Well, that's sort of the story of Donald's life, though, that I think he still always assumes the world Assumes that people love him. him. Like he was yeah. like, like the, the, the protective snow globe that was The Apprentice. Because mm-hmm. he didn't have any interaction with real people. It was just he was getting ratings. Right. And that tells you only so much. But um, I think his bitterness comes from the fact that he always knew that New York hated him. He always had his nose, I think, pressed up against yep. that glass and looked – saw that party of the real New York mm-hmm. A-listers 
that old money crowd, but they never really welcomed him until he had power. And even then, there were parties he will never be invited to, and he knew that, and there were buildings he will not be welcomed into. You know, that it's, um, I think, in a way, that was the only thing that was forbidden, denied him. Mm -hmm. And he's just, in his own dumb ox way, aware of that. And so you could tell, okay, if I can't have these people, I will settle for the mobs of screaming Klan folk that attend my rallies. And some part of his brain knows that, okay, this isn't what I would have chosen, but I'll go with it because it gets me in power and makes me a few bucks. He would have loved <clears throat> to have been the Hugh Hefner of the East Coast. Oh, yeah. And then, like, Hollywood didn't embrace him. New York society didn't embrace him. Um, I think he would have loved to have been Michael Bloomberg in a certain oh, way. Oh, God, yes. You know? And also the, the, the his gripe against the times— Mm-hmm. He would have loved and still would love more than anything, I think, to be the darling of the New York Times, and they never bought it. Oh, it was sort of the carrot and the donkey. Yeah. And it, you could tell every morning he still thinks, maybe it will happen today. <laughs> you know, I'll get that cover of the Sunday magazine oh. proclaiming me smarter and more handsome and more debonair than than had ever been suspected. Well, also, and it's always so naked. It's like with Melania, who also is another treasure Oh, <laughs> from, something. from the Trump trove. She is, well, just the fact that she is still so angry that she didn't get a Vogue cover. Oh, yeah. She brings it up. And you think, that's your entire goal in life. You know, and your entire sense of injustice is not like slavery, you know, or the Second no. World War. It's just, why... Was I not on the cover of Vogue? And when Jill Biden was on the cover, you know, with mm. her with her granddaughter, I think, the flame shooting out of Mar-a-Lago... You know, we're intense that day. All right. I want to move on to the book you've got coming out this coming year. It won't be out till June. It's called Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style. And I am, and this is odd for me, I'm very proud of it. And it's, um, so I hope people enjoy it. There's a lot of stuff that I've sort of been trying to get at in, in other writing that I've done. And this kind of brought it together. There was something, one of the topics that I had always been interested in was in the very wealthiest families. Mm -hmm. There's often one gay kid. And this book is not inspired by any specific one, but it's like in the Koch brothers, Mm -hmm. who were some of the most powerful, most deeply conservative people in America. There was one brother named Fred Koch, Mm -hmm. who was gay, who Mm -hmm. supported the opera, the ballet, you name it. And he clearly was bought off or some arrangement was made. There's only one sort of existing scrap of journalism about him. It was an interview with Vanity Fair. He walks out midway when they're not willing to sign, give him uh, editorial approval of the piece because he never wanted to be identified as openly gay, but he clearly was. I actually knew someone who I think he tried to pick up on the steps of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, So it was, but I thought, okay, what's it like to be in that position in one of those families? Because it's also, it's look at Mary Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the one person who, because you've been excluded and you've been ostracized and you've been condemned, but you have access to this certain degree of money and power and it's overwhelming, And do you walk away from it all? Do you say, no, I'm going to go to nursing school. You know, I'm going to do good in the world, unlike my vicious mogul relatives. Or how do you manage that? And it fascinated me because I thought it was also, I wanted to write about gay people in powerful positions, Mm -hmm. you know, and about, so it wasn't just a coming out story or a tale of heartbreak or a tale of somebody being beaten to death with a crowbar. You know, this is about, 
powerful, funny, romantic guys. So there's a couple, main couple at the center of it, and it goes from kind of the mid-70s till right now. And one of the, the, one of the benefits of actually getting older is you, you've been there. You can report on it. Yeah. You know how things were. And that's what I wanted to get at, that sense of um, a celebration of gay lives, but also of their place in the larger American world, that sense of, okay, how did they maneuver? How do they get their own brand of power? Right. You know, which these people do, because Farrell Covington is a very rich, very powerful man. Gay characters forever have lost. They yes. always lose. They're always a sacrificial lamb. Uh, they have to compromise something. They never win they never get the brass ring. They always have to, they're always compromised in some way, either, yes. you know, mortally or it's always less than in some way. And so to know that there is a character being written where maybe not so much. Yeah. It's about people who don't live in fear. Right. Who don't beg for scraps, who really mm. say, you're going to have to deal with me at the greatest possible level. And also people who say, I'm going to have the best possible time. I want to be that guy. Oh, yeah. That's, I, I do, too. That's what, kind of why I wrote him, because I thought when he sort of burst forth in the very early pages of this book, and I just, I've never written something where it sort of came out all of a piece where I thought, I don't know where this guy is coming from, but I adore him and I can't write him enough. And he um, faces enormous obstacles in the course of the book, but he refuses to surrender. He's also consistently funny and consistently triumphs in his own it's people who use their personality in the best way as, as, as a way of avoiding defeat good now um, I want to get to a little bit about you um, before we wrap you grew up in New Jersey you bet how many siblings one older or younger older older and mom and dad were they in the picture they were okay they were you, they were great they were what my did mom, your dad do my dad was a physicist which really was, oh yeah I mean I'm Far, the farthest thing from that, and he was so sweet. He was the, he was the nicest. He's no longer with us, but he was the nicest man because he kept trying to teach me math and to drive. So you and, became a writer who lived in Manhattan. Yes, exactly, which <laughs> I always do. No, that's why I never divided people into gay and straight. I thought you have people who live in New Jersey and people who live in New York, and those were my gender preference that's groups. A, <laughs> you know, and I thought I know that at some point yeah. the bus will appear and yeah. I will climb on it. It will take me to New York, and it did. Did you always know you wanted to write? I did. I did, which is the weirdest thing. My mom had a, some composition I wrote when I was like seven years old where I said I wanted to be a playwright. I'd never seen a play. So but it just knew. sounded good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, and it always, because I knew I was just temperamentally unsuited to having a real job, mm -hmm. which I think is the true reason behind almost every writer's career is sure. like avoiding the office um, and the routine because you're just, that's something so beyond me. I'm so impressed with people who can do that. I think, my God, you have achieved a level of adulthood that I can only, you know, gasp at. Right. But yeah, no, it just always seemed like a so appealing and all, and almost like a the most glorious cheat. Like, mm -hmm. oh wait, I get to write about everything. Yeah, I get to try and you know entertain people or inform them, whatever. That it seemed like a, a like a, the best kind of scam. Whether it's a, uh, a stage play, a screenplay, a novel, a tweet, do you have a favorite format? No. One of, that, one of the very few things I've learned is you let the material dictate the form. That it's something where, like with Farrell Covington, it was, I thought, no, 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 this is a novel. And this is a novel with a certain epic scope. And so it was such pleasure to say, yeah, this has found exactly its form. 
And so, yeah, sometimes I've started writing something as a book and then it says, no, no, this is a play. This takes place in one setting. Right. This happened with, with I Hate Hamlet. I was actually living in an apartment off Washington Square where John Barrymore, the, the great actor, had once lived. So I started writing a book and then I realized, no, 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 this is about an actor. This wants to be a play. And so I surrendered. So I don't worry so much about what exactly I should put on my tax return under profession. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> Whore. (laughs) (laughs) Word whore. (laughs) I'm going to... Now, my last sort of subject for you, Libby Gelman-Waxner. Tell me about Libby Gelman-Waxner. Who is she? Well, it's interesting because there's, in a certain sense, everyone on Twitter is Libby Mm -hmm. because she burst forth, you know, over 20 years ago when someone, Premier Magazine, the late beloved, asked me if I was interested in being a film critic. And I thought, the world kind of has too many film critics already. So I said, what about someone on the fictional side? And Libby made her appearance, and she was an assistant buyer in Junior's Activewear, and she just, and she went to the movies to ogle sexy movie stars to look at what the, I, the furniture in people's apartments and what they were wearing and to um, imagine herself in the stories. It was such a juicy place to write from. And I remember after the early columns, sometimes she would get outraged mail, people saying, you know, you should just go read a little Francois Truffaut. And I thought, (laughs) you're not getting this. And then she did get one of the strangest moments of my life and most heartbreaking was when a guy wrote to Libby and said that he was a male model who was also attending Yale and he'd fallen in love with Libby and he would leave his longtime girlfriend if Libby would marry him. Libby just wrote back and said, oh, sure, yeah, like any of that is true. I once met this guy. It was all true. And I had to think, okay, which is more embarrassing? You're the original catfish. I was. But I thought, do you want to be the person who's the cat or the fish? You know, that it was so <laughs> odd. And he was sweet and he was totally straight. And a model, wow. he was great looking. And so we both sort of edged away from each other. I would get letters from sailors on destroyers. And I'd think... Do you have a subscription? How did you have premiere in your, you know, on while you're swabbing something? Wow. But so it was, um, it was just wonderful for right because it was so it was like total license to say what you really yeah. thought rather than what you think you should say. <sighs> and also, there was at that time it was when journalism was being transformed. Everything was personal. Everything was, you know, well, how did the election or the earthquake? Or the junta affect me personally yeah. and my wardrobe. Or me. And exactly, exactly. And now, of course, Twitter is everyone acting as if they're an authority on everything. And you know that their word is now law. And it's obscene mm-hmm. and sort of delightful, that kind of confidence of the, you know, unwashed. Libby sometimes makes appearances in The New Yorker. And I've seen her on Twitter occasionally. Yeah, she does, because she drops by. But sometimes Twitter just will outstrip Libby because people will say such outrageous things. And also there'll be those gangs of people with opinions on West Side Story or The Whale. And it's like you don't mess with it because they're taking it very seriously. And they're also acting as if they need to be heard. Libby has basically, when you do things like that or anything where there is a pretty – generally held opinion about something and you have basically shown the bat light in the sky and they are Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. and they, they are obliged to set you straight. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and to set you straight as if someone's opinion on a Tom Cruise movie is the central issue of our time. Absolutely. 
My last question for you, my dear. Is humor going to save us? I don't know if it ever saves us, but it certainly makes the descent a little more pleasurable. <laughs> you know it? that, yeah, it sort of, it, it could save you on a sort of psychic level that you think, okay, this is that important. This is all life and death, mm-hmm. but the people I most admire can also joke, you know, whether it was yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt or, Oscar you know, Wilde. Oscar Wilde or Martin Luther King, anybody, they all had a sense of humor. Joan Rivers. Yes, Joan, exactly. I once saw her on Home Shopping where she said it was so. She made that. It, that was art. Oh, she, oh, completely. Her QVC shit was art. And she would push it a little bit further each time. Because uh-huh. I remember she was once selling, you know, some. Because her products were actually very beautiful and yeah. very well designed. And She was the Bergdorf of QVC. Completely. And she, I remember she was wearing something where she said, yeah, I look like a rich Jew. And it was you no one has ever said that on QVC. Mm-mm. And she was so sort of jubilant about it. Mm-hmm. And you loved her because you thought, I'm sure the QVC phone lines just sort of erupted. You but know that the kids in the control room, when Joan was on doing her segments, oh my Lord. they were just like, okay, what's she going to do today? Yes. Like, I remember one time live, I watched, because it was entertaining. Uh, and she liked doing it, actually. Oh, um, you could tell. Yeah. No, she enjoyed herself. She loved And she was a, she was a master salesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, she referred to one of the models as a MILF. Um, <laughs> oh my, did she explain it? No, she just let it fl- She <laughs> right. just let it float for as long as it did. People would just go, oh my God, I can't no, she believe she just so, said that. She was she, amazing. Oh yeah, and she was so smart and so funny. Yeah. And she just, but also you could tell why people adored her across, yeah. you know, every social yeah. group that she just, she was also so sort of helplessly herself, which is sort of the, the secret to life. Joan was very, uh, I don't think she gets enough credit for this. She was very, what I would say, she was very punk rock. She was. Especially when, I remember when she would work out material at um, at New York comedy clubs. It was wild. Oh, yeah. Thank you for coming up here and talking to me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are one of the silver linings. You know, people often talk of the dangers of social media, and you have been one of the silver linings and the saving voices during the pandemic, during the Trump times, and let's keep doing this. Yeah, no, right back at you. I mean, no, that's, I think I'm like everyone else, where you think, what is George going to say today? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the same way about you, truly, and it's the best Twitter follow I've made. So (gasps) thank you, my dear. an interesting epitaph. Sure. Uh, why not? Yeah. I'll take it. And that's it for this pilot episode of the George Hahn Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Paul half as much as I enjoyed talking to him. What a pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to his new novel, Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style, out in June from Simon & Schuster. Now, you can always catch up with me on my website at georgehahn.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as George Hahn, on TikTok as George Hahn NYC, and on the new emerging platform, Post, as just George. And just a reminder, this podcast is free of charge and free from advertising. If you guys enjoyed it and want me to make more, please consider a one-time support contribution or a monthly subscription by going to georgehahn.com support. Whichever way you go, I'm glad you're here. And thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time.
I, that, you know how there are, this is so awful to say, but there are certain crimes where people, you say, yes, I have at least had that impulse. I have not, thank God, acted mm-hmm. on it. But there are certain, you know, crimes of passion. Like an open-handed slap. I mean, I've wanted to do that daily. Oh, my Lord. No, yeah. if, you could, if you could use that as a fossil fuel, yeah. that <laughs> desire to slap people, <laughs> we would power the entire subcontinent, <laughs> you know, with that sense of, you have no idea what it's taking for me right now to at least not pinch you or, or say, you know. Yeah.